Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Attack and Release Show. My name is Matt, and on today's episode, we have a pretty old friend. Christian, you and I have known each other for, what, 10 years? Yeah, that's probably right. So... Today's guest is a good friend of mine. His name is Christian Steinmetz. And uh, in the future, probably 20 to 50 years from now, you will be tuning in, listening to this on the uh, Steinmetz 6000. That's how <laughs> he'll, he'll, be, he'll be taking over the world with everything that he is making and that he has made. And um, yeah, I mean, his CV speaks for itself. I'm going to try to do justice to all the... All, all the things that you've done, but the, I would say like after you graduated high school, you went off to Clemson and uh, you and I had a lot of back and forth when you were uh, doing a lot of stuff with their radio station up there. Um, and then your CV says you went on to intern for Bose and then Dolby and then Facebook Reality Labs. And then this summer you're going to intern for Adobe. Mm-hmm. And then... As far as your education, you're, you, like, I don't know how you fit this. Did you do it in four years, your undergrad? Uh, it was five years. Which is, is five normal for engineering? No, four is normal, so I took a little bit of extra time, but I felt like it was worth it. Yeah, so you'll get it in a second. So electrical engineering, production studies, and performing arts, concentration audio technology, along with a minor in math. That's crazy. <laughs> And then you have, I can't pronounce where you did your master's. Well, how do you pronounce that? Uh, it's just Universitat Pompeo Fabra. There you go. So That's like it. that. That's all. It's just that. So, yeah, master in sound and music computing. And now you're at uh, Queen Mary London University doing your PhD in artificial intelligence and music. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like us to know about <laughs> where you have been? And I think that summarizes it. You know, I think if anything's clear from that, I mean, my focus has been pretty consistent. So, you know, through my undergrad and whatnot up until now, which is basically, you know, how can we improve audio engineering, you know, with signal processing? And, and now that's probably with machine learning, basically. Yeah. And so you're making essentially these programs as part of your, well, as part of your, part of your master's and then your, uh, now your PhD, and why don't you kind of tell us what you're currently working on? I'll occasionally figure out what you're working on <laughs> because you'll come into my mind of like, oh yeah, what, wonder what Christians are like. I'll be mowing my grass. I'm like, man, I wonder what this guy's up to. <laughs> and then I'll get an email like a few weeks later of like, hey, I'm doing this thing, and uh, I'd like for you to participate in this test. And uh, would you be my lab rat? Which I love being your lab rat and. <laughs> Anyone who's listening to this podcast would probably be more than willing to participate in any of these studies. And um, so, why don't you tell us specifically, like right now, like what are you doing? And I feel like I, I, I heard something that if um, that you really can tell what that you know what you're doing if you can explain it, like to a kindergartner. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's what I need. I'm not saying our audience needs that, but I would need that. So, yeah. can you unpack what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say really, I mean, I'm sure most people have at least heard of or aware of basically the revolution that's been going on with machine learning and more specifically with uh, what is called deep learning. Um, and this has you know, been going on now for 
maybe about five years or five or six years that really kind of kick off where for the first time people were showing that these kinds of methods where you can simply just learn, you can teach a computer to learn things by showing it many examples. And basically that idea had been around, that idea has been around for a really long time, actually, since the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but it really hadn't become feasible because of the amount of compute that you needed to, to make it do something useful. And in, yeah, about five or six years ago, that became possible. And now we've seen, you know, this is affecting, you know, many different industries and there's a lot of research interest in it. Uh, so my research interest is basically saying, you know, how can we use these techniques to try to advance audio engineering, which there's a long history of signal processing techniques in audio engineering that you know date back for a, a long time, uh, even you know even predating digital, right? Understanding filters, understanding dynamic range compressors, and things like this. And this, and originally, you know, that was designing circuits to to do that. And right now, we're kind of asking the question of, you know, what is the new paradigm of how audio engineering will look? You know, how can we make it easier? How can we make it uh, better in that we can help you achieve what you want faster, basically? And, and that's kind of what we're looking at it from a high level. And that doesn't really get down to the details of what it looks like, but at least that's the ultimate goal of, you know, saying how can these new techniques make it faster, make it easier, and you know, essentially further democratize tools for creating audio productions. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> so how do like so how does this go about from you going from electrical engineering, like studying music and like a minor in math, how do you get to where you are from there? Like, like what do you gradually have to learn to get to like, now you're into like deep learning and AI. And I think we need to define deep learning too for our <laughs> okay, audience. Let, okay, and also by audience, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it is a bit, it is a bit tricky to, to, to define it. Well, yeah. um, but I actually do for, for musically or audio inclined people, I actually have a nice analogy that I, I like to use, which is yes, you can you can imagine so I'm sure you're aware of you know a very common thing like a guitar pedal stomp box, for example. Yes. And this kind of device, you have an input which you plug your guitar into, and then you have an output that you plug into your amp. Mm-hmm. And on this device, you also have some knobs that you change. And changing the knobs of that device changes the output, right? Yeah. And it, in some cases, also a function of the input. So if, you're, if your pedal's a compressor, how you play the input will also change what comes out the output as well. Yeah. Uh, so what you can think of is deep learning generally uses these types of models called neural networks. And neural networks are actually just very complicated stomp boxes. You can think mm. of them. And they have knobs. But instead of having just three knobs, like a normal human stomp box, they have a billion knobs. <laughs> and so, right, no human could ever set those knobs in order to get the sound you wanted out. So right. in, 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 in the general sense, like, for example, the most common case you hear deep learning used for is like building uh, image uh, classifier. So that's, that's a model where you give it an image and it tells you, oh, this is a picture of a cat, for example. Yeah. That's hmm. like the classical example. So this neural network that's doing this classification is actually a function, just like where it has some input and it has some output. But what you want to do is you want to figure out how should I set those one billion knobs such that when I put a cat in, it always tells me it's a cat. And when I put a dog in, it tells me it's a dog. 
Uh, and basically, the way that we do this is we have a system for actually training that those knobs by showing it millions of examples of cats and dogs. And eventually, that process of adjusting all those knobs will result in this theoretical stomp box that every time we put in something, it gives us out what we wanted, basically. Wow. That's great. So is like... I don't know. It, at at any point, it's like if you dumb it back down to the three knob stomp box, is it that, like, is that kind of like the output that we're seeing? Only it's making all those little tiny adjustments, like behind the scenes on the billions of ones that turn the three knobs on the other one. Or am I kind of like going down a weird rabbit hole here? Well, I mean, it, it may be a little bit confusing, you know, if you're depending on like what the application is that you're talking about. So uh, you just use the stomp box example as basically an analogy for like what a neural network is. And right, mm -hmm. that input and output can be anything. It could be audio or it could be images, it could be video, it could be text. Uh, but obviously, like in my research, I'm interested in the case where that audio is the input and the output. Um, but yeah, to your question, I think the, the main point of like, you could ask, well, why does the box need to have an, a billion knobs to be useful? And, and that's basically because if you try to, basically like early research in AI was trying to ask like, if I wanted to build this theoretical system to predict whether an image is a cat or a dog, they sat down and said, oh, well, let's just write a hundred rules. If, if this thing has ears that are this size and they are this color, then it must be a dog or, and not a cat. But the problem is you quickly learn that this doesn't really work because you can never write down enough rules that fully capture what is a dog, what is a cat. So basically, the idea is that you have this giant network that can learn what is a cat and what is a dog by looking at many examples. And all of these parameters or the knobs of the model encode this information more or less. Is there an easy way to um, essentially explain how you teach a computer to remember something and then spit it back out when you provide it with like a random, so let's call it like a stimulus, like like a picture of a cat or a picture of a dog. Is it just like, it's storing, like it like it has like an, and it's like if I show it a picture of a golden retriever, it can very well pull up the same picture of a golden retriever, but you'd ideally want it to be like, oh yeah, that's walking down the road, facial recognitions for dog, that's a golden retriever. <laughs> and so it's like, is there an easy way to explain like how a computer knows that, like it retains that information? Yeah, so I would say that with our current systems, it certainly doesn't know anything, actually. That, that's kind of one of the core problems. And basically, what it's learning is just statistics. It's a very complicated statistical model because in order to train it, you must show it one million dogs for it to figure out what is a dog. And then the problem is there's also some really interesting research that looks for edge cases where basically they ask, how can I find a picture of a dog such that when I give it to this amazing dog model, it thinks it's a panda or it thinks it's a cat or something else. And they are some really interesting examples where they can do something like, for example, just change one pixel of a, of a dog image and put it into the model. And the model will say that's something completely different. So, but to a human, you would still look at it and say, oh, it's a dog. Just because I changed that one little pixel, it didn't change that it was a dog. And I think that that underlies you know, what these systems are doing, which is basically looking at data, which in this case is pixels, and it's trying to build a model that says, if I see pixels that are grouped like this, it must be a dog. Oh. Holy crap. 
So, okay, so let's now tie this into audio. I yeah. feel like we got like a little <laughs> bit of a primer. Yeah. Let's let's talk about like what you have on here. For for those of you listening at home, Christian is our first guest to make us our own schedule. <laughs> and I really I I like this. So I want to know more on like this whole like signal processing 2.0. I want yeah. to kind of know like how this ties into audio, how this mm-hmm. goes into like the future of plugins. Like, I mean, you have companies uh, like Isotope that are that have this RX program that I have uh, that like w- one of one of my clients had an issue, and he had like this r- rumbling air conditioner in the background of this live recording. But I also needed it to not like like and like it has programs to remove that. But I also needed like this cello, which has a lot of low end resonant information. I needed that to be preserved. And through like, you know, various tweaking and whatnot, and of like my own idiocy of like right and wrong, I was able to kind of pull it off to at least a pull offable amount. And like they claim it's through some type of like AI program and stuff. And they have things where you can, they say, yeah, this is a vocal and you can turn up and down the vocal at the mastering stage. These are drums. This is how we turn this up and down. <laughs> so where does this go like beyond here as far as you see? Yeah, so I would say I think the current limitation or so what you're actually hitting on there is, for example, like I, I kind of, I frame my current research which in, within this paradigm of fix, fit, and feature, which are these like three individual stages that Alex Case, who's a, you know, a very popular audio engineering educator, talks about as being core aspects of the audio engineering process. And so like what you were just talking about there is like a great example of like this fix task that generally comes at the beginning of a production process, right? You're like cleaning mm. up, editing takes, uh, removing background noise, de-reverberation, uh, things like that. And I think that this is definitely one area that I'm focused on in my research. And while things like Isotope RX are certainly like great and state of the art, there certainly are a lot of... Uh, audio cases where we can't currently, you know, recover things because of Mm. background noise or because of reverberation. And I would actually say that reverberation is probably the most challenging. So for example, if you record in a bedroom, you know, with a condenser mic without any sort of treatment on the walls, there's pretty much nothing you can do to make that vocal sound as if it was recorded in a, you know, a well-treated room. And so that's one question Mm. that I'm looking at specifically. So what is it like you find a way to isolate that vocal and then you kind of say, this is the type of room that I want this in. And then this is then kind of like how this vocal will like, like that room just kind of, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking like, like FabFilter has like a delay plugin or like a reverb plugin. It's a reverb where like it essentially creates a room for you. And like you're, it's not like you're selecting like hall, church, jazz, <laughs> rock. TV, it's like you're going in and you're physically like dialing in. Yeah, this is a long room, or this is kind of like a fat room, and this is the decay, and this is all this stuff. And you're getting like EQ curves, and then you can say, Yeah, this is how this performs in this room. Is it like something you're doing? Like you isolate the vocal and then you pop it into this room that you've made that you deem as like acoustically pleasant, or so. so- not not so much that. I mean, the what, the second part you're talking about is actually what I think fits into the feature category, uh, which is you know making decisions about how something should sound. 
So in the first step of fix, yeah, it's basically just separate the vocal. So as if it sounded, if it was recorded without these undesirable reflections, essentially remove the undesirable aspects of the, of the music, which is, I mean, it's somewhat dangerous to say, but I think it's fairly, uh, you know, fairly agreed upon that that kind of thing is a well-defined task. Like if I say remove the reverberation from this track, it's pretty well-defined what that means. Uh, whereas, for example, create a good mix or apply good reverb is a very subjective task. Like clearly there's not one answer there. That'd be, that'd be kind of crazy. So do people who mix audio need to be as worried as some people who master audio when they see Lander? Um, I mean, worried is is the wrong is the wrong word. I would say I'm being facetious, <laughs> but uh, I mean, and this is kind of what I, I I touch on in the second section of the of the document about the role of automation, basically, because I, I think that there is really, you know, it's a really important question to say, you know, what how do we want our technology like to be involved in our process of creating music, you know, which is basically an art form, so. I think it's important that, you know, people decide that for themselves. There's obviously clearly not like someone, you know, down from above saying you must use this tool. I mean, there's, and there's plenty of examples of that too. So let's just imagine that there was some amazing mixing system that existed right now. You know, people are still likely going to be working in their studios on an analog mixing console just because there's, we have synthesizers, people are still playing acoustic guitars, you know. So these will, all of the tools we have today will probably always be an option, but there likely will also be improved tools in, in the future, I think, that people will eventually pick up. Um, I, I kind of point out here that I think that there's kind of a progression that may occur as a result of these, you know, hypothetical tools. Um, the first thing really is basically, yeah, making the the quality, like the baseline quality level of, of audio productions higher than it is now. And I think we've already seen this happen from a very hardware perspective. So like if you went to, if you ask someone in 1960 to like make a recording in their bedroom, it would have sounded way worse than the recording that someone can make in their bedroom now for, you know, with a hundred dollar interface and a hundred dollar condenser mic. So clearly mm. our hardware has improved. But what I kind of point to is that our software or our, you know, tools haven't really improved from a usability standpoint. You know, we now have an explosion of plugins, more plugins than you could probably ever use, but they haven't gotten much easier to use overall. You know, it's kind of been an addition of complexity. And I, I feel like the next stage in the cycle is a reduction in complexity where we then, you know, can focus more on creating the sounds that we want, basically. Um, and then that kind of brings on to the next, the next part of that, which is that these kind of tools not only help like let musicians or amateur people create better sounding productions, but also will help professionals work faster and focus on things you want to focus on instead of focusing on aspects you don't want to focus on. And, and really the final point there is then saying, you know, elevating the level of quality for amateurs or, or even just anybody with less experience in some sense puts pressure right on professionals that are, you know, trying to do this for a living. And I, and while that pressure may be, you know, scary potentially, I think it's good because I think what we will see is that audio engineers will have to innovate. They'll be forced to innovate in some way uh, that due to their own creativity to outplay these hypothetical systems, right? And I think we really, I, I use photography as a good example of that because when photography first came on the scene, a lot of artists like painters 
were very critical of it and said, photography is not art, it's just capturing an image of the world, right? But clearly photography is its, in its own right is now you know, widely accepted as a, as a fine art. Oh, yeah. uh, but, but what we saw then is right in the 19, in like the early 1900s and, and as the cameras progressed, basically, you see the emergence of all of these new you know, uh, styles of art like surrealism and abstract expressionism that all you know, had other factors. But photography in one way, it was like saying, the artist was saying, as a painter, how can I create something that the camera can't create? And beforehand, painting was focused highly on realism, right? Before, mm-hmm. before that. So it was kind of a shift in thinking because it, there's kind of this game between the technology and the, and the people involved in it. So I, I think we'll see some sort of game like that. There's, there's never, in my mind, there's never some system where all the humans become removed and it's just machines making yeah. all the art. I, I don't see that as really a feasible uh, end point. Wait, real quick. Do you think that, so all of that you believe is painter's reaction to the camera i mean i mean it's impossible to say that that's the yeah. sole uh thing and i'm not making that claim and and other people but other people have um you know made similar claims along that line where you can show that if, if you just look at the progression of art uh, uh painting for example compared to the timeline of photography you can see a very clear uh trend there that where kind of impressionism and uh, surrealism become more Whoa. popular as mm. photography becomes more applicable. That's wild. <laughs> I have to like go check that one out later and look at that. Yeah, I yeah. have a, I have a few links in in this section specifically. I think how yeah we'll link it. Yeah, how photography you. became art is a great article that I have linked in there that discusses exactly all I'm talking about and gives plenty of examples as well. Okay, I want to. I want to dive into my brain is like absolutely blown right now, which is great. But I want to talk about on your outline here, back up here to the signal processing 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk through that? And I like, uh, I was reading through, you know, my research ask uh, the questions you're asking. I think they're really good. So can we talk about audio signal processing 2.0 and what yeah. that means to you? For sure. So, I mean, I, I take this uh, idea from another researcher uh, who who has coined something called Software 2.0, mm-hmm. and they and they basically look at Software 2.0 as this deep learning revolution, where instead of teaching, instead of having a computer do something by sitting down and writing code, you instead teach it to do something yeah. by showing it many examples. And so, instead of having to write all this code, you can just teach it what you want it to do. That's kind of the notion of software 2.0. So signal processing 2.0 is based on that idea, basically, that I'm proposing here, where we would have, instead of, you know, traditionally what we've done from a signal processing point of view is, you know, come up with a bunch of maths and say, like, here's how we create an infinite impulse response filter to have a certain cutoff frequency and all this, right? And then it comes down to the audio engineers, uh, like they need to then have to learn how do I use these tools, right? How do I mm-hmm. learn the tools of signal processing in order to achieve my internal goal? And, and so basically, I think the underlying question that I've kind of highlighted in the document there is, you know, is this kind of traditional paradigm of uh, trying to learn how to use all these complex tools really the optimal one to achieve our sonic goals? Because our sonic goal, achieving our sonic goals is basically the whole purpose of audio engineering in my opinion like yeah we're not we're not doing audio engineering because 
filters are cool. I mean, they are, <laughs> but that's not the sole reason why people are making music, right? Right. And yeah, and so signal processing 2.0 is basically saying, you know, how can we replace these things that we normally think about, like compressors and, and equalizers, with something else that helps us achieve that goal? And in this case, that's been trained by listening to a lot of music, for example. That's amazing. Walk me through these three main results of the deployment of deep learning and music production. Yeah, so this is kind of what I was pointing to a little bit before when I was going yeah. into my discussion about, about how I think things could, could uh, you know, progress. And basically, yeah, I think this first point of, you know, basically elevate the baseline level of quality for productions. Uh, I think this is already happening. And, and like I was saying, hardware was kind of the first revolution, like very yeah. cheap interfaces was the first revolution. And now we're going to be entering the paradigm where that happens in software. So, so now I can roll up with a good mic and, uh, you know, sit down in, in any space and just record something and it will sound as if it was recorded in a million dollar studio. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the end goal there. And I think we're currently in that part. Like the market is very interested in these kinds of tools. And mm. it also um, is easier because generally these kind of productions, right, are something where they have almost no budget to begin with. So they're not, it's not trying to replace the studio for professionals. It's trying to just give people that are interested in amateurs or musicians, you know, an ability to make their recordings better. But once we kind of hone that technology and make it ready for prime time, I really do think that eventually we'll go into the second step of actually being used to improve the workflow for professionals. Yeah, that's amazing. So that kind of leads us into the idea of intelligent music production, which you have written here, which mm -hmm. you briefly said the the alliteration of fix fit feature yeah can we talk more about the fix fit and feature kind of what you have here in your notes yeah for sure and and yeah so i mean this is in no way a fully you know uh exhaustive uh right you know, description right, right. of what is audio engineering but i yeah. think it's it's i like it a lot because it really does strip a way to look at the core elements of what's happening in an audio production. And I think that's a great starting point, basically, for our work to look at how can we build tools that actually are useful um, in an audio engineering context. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and to be clear, again, it's, it's this is not my idea the, of the fix, fit, and feature. Uh, yeah. I'm just uh, right. here to ground some of our work. Um, but yeah, yeah. So to, to summarize it again, the, the fix, again, is to like fix issues in the mix or of singular recordings that are, are what I would consider fairly objective problems, yeah. like removing the noise, removing reflections. Uh, maybe there's a frequency imbalance in your recording due to your mic placement or something like that. So, so kind of just giving things to a baseline acceptable quality level. But once you've done that, the fit process is really all about mixing. And it's about a, like achieving a cohesive mix, more or less, yeah. which is really challenging. Um, and I think that this is actually something that I think our field as a research field struggles to get across to people outside the area of audio engineering because most people, when they think of mixing audio, they're just like, oh, you just take all of the instruments and sum them together and then that's right. the mix, right? right? But clearly it's far more complicated than that. And there's a lot of uh, interactions that are happening between the different audio streams that you need to consider to make a good mix. Uh, so in, in the fix uh, setup, it's challenging because not only do we need a system that can do something like apply processing, but it also needs to have some like notion of understanding of what is in the song, right? And like maybe what comes in the future and what comes in right. what was in the past as well. 
Um, so it kind of is an understanding task in some senses. So within the fix, do you think there will be something created or you will create it um, that is basically an intelligent, you know, forgive my ignorance, intelligent plugin or something that could take a drum kit, you know, kick, snare top, snare bottom, and it be intelligent enough to basically mix that for you? Is that the idea of in this? Yep. Of and where I mean, you think we're potentially headed, just more intelligent software or plugins, or is it, it is this even beyond that? You know, that's like too too right now thinking. Yeah, that is right now here. That is right now yeah. thinking, and they're already. Right. I already have one paper that basically does that, and a little bit more. And there's another. Yeah. There's one other paper as well um, that has done has demonstrated this. So for the drum case, this is actually like I would. I mean, I would say that that's like a solved problem. For specifically yeah. the drums, is easy to mix just the drums by themselves. I mean, again, we're not creating a Grammy award-winning mix here, but we can create a mix that's better than you know a random mix or mm-hmm. better than a, a simple sum. Or it can uh, give you a good starting point in yeah, theory. For yeah. sure, a great starting point. Yeah. Um, but really, the future of fix, like the next step of uh, of fit, sorry, um, yeah. is is about uh, having a way to intuitively search what I consider like the mix space, basically. So the mix space is you could, you know, you can consider how many different ways could I set up my DAW such that I create a mix, like every single possible combination of plugin on every single channel with every single possible turn of every knob, right? And if you tried to compute this, you know, it's something in like, there's, there's, there's more possible combinations than there are atoms in the universe, basically. Like, I think I've done the math out on that before. Uh, so it's some like extreme high level of complexity and, and right. And in some way that makes the audio engineer's job like really cool, right? Because they're using their intuition and their like knowledge to search this like super high dimensional space to find some configuration of this system such that the output is sounds cool. Yeah. And so essentially what we really want is to have this thing where, yeah, there's just like, imagine just three knobs and changing any one of those knobs changes a thousand knobs in your doll all at the same mm-hmm. time, but as if a real human knew what you were doing and could adjust them all in an intelligent way. So you could like flip through like just like you flip through like Instagram filters, you could flip yeah. through different settings where each one of those is like a mix that's been tailored specifically to your mm. tracks and sounds mm-hmm. good. And then you get to curate and pick which of those mixes is the one I want to listen to. It's interesting because it's still like you're getting hired for your taste on yes. some level, which I think is, in my opinion, still what I get paid for is like peace of mind and taste making um, on some level with mastering. So it kind of feels like um, we're like you were saying, like humans in general will not be irrelevant. We'll just have to learn these new tools in theory and how to become tastemakers of those. Or is that is that not a good way to think about this at all? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much exactly how I think about it. Um, okay, I think there will be. I, I think it's a bit more complex than that. In that there yeah. will always be some divergent group that's saying, "How can I add?" even more complexity, right? Um, I think that will always exist, but I, I do feel like the mainstream will move in this direction of saying, how can I focus more on my sonic idea or sonic goal and, yeah. and hear less about attack and release times of my compressor? Right. right. Okay, that is making sense to me. Let's move to this feature process real quick. 
mm-hmm. or maybe not real quick, whatever time you need to. <laughs> sure. It's a big process, it seems like. Yeah. So, so Alex Case kind of talks of like his notion of feature is like all of the things in the mix. Um, and you could consider this in mastering as well, where it's like your artistic touches, basically. So nothing that's like required to make the song be acceptable, but the, but the aspects that make it interesting. And generally this is things like in the very basic case, you know, like having a delay on the vocal, having a reverb that suits the track, having tasteful distortion or something like that, or, you know, very, or aggressive dynamic range compression, if that's what you want as well. Those are all mm-hmm. like feature decisions. And, and this one is certainly difficult because I, I don't foresee the system, like this kind of hypothetical system, solving this problem in that it's going to uh, magically know what's the option that you want for the distortion. But yeah. actually what I think is more interesting is that, and what I talk about in the feature aspect is that it's likely that these techniques will provide us with a new type or new range of effects that goes beyond the effects that we have today, which, yeah. right, like we, we, you know, kind of have this like very fixed taxonomy, more or less of like, this thing is a reverb, this thing is a delay, this thing is an EQ, more or less. And we've kind of stuck with that actually, you know, almost since the birth of audio engineering, those kind of tools have been consistent. They're just, they've just been expanded a lot and improved. But I think basically the space of deep learning basically learns a function. And if you actually think about it, a compressor is a function and a filter EQ is a function as well. So actually, our, so some of my work, for example, in trying to model analog audio effects with mm-hmm. deep learning is an interesting way to think about this. So basically you, you have some neural network and you want to train it to emulate, for example, an LA2A compressor. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you can achieve this goal, which we've shown you can, basically that tells you that, uh, you know, within a neural network, there's one configuration of its, you know, millions of knobs such that when you put audio into it, it's an LA2A, yeah. which is interesting. But it also means that there's also a billion other combinations of turning those knobs that are all a different and unique effect, some of yeah. which have yet to mm. be heard. Right. My mind is just running now. You have like infinite LA2A versions, yeah. essentially, which we kind of do, you know, depending on the year and the model and the age and whatnot. But I like that you wrote here too that, um, you know, a potential result of the neural networks is an entirely new genre of music. Yeah. Which I think, you know, I'm just thinking about like robots now in a room just cr- creating, I mean, this is the dumbest way to think about it probably, but just creating their own music and they're just running wild in the studio (laughs) (laughs) like just knobs being turned and new sounds coming out and that that personally excites me i've talked about it before of like the ai and whatnot really excites me because i think it's going to open up a whole new realm of creation of art and music and begin to redefine um what we can do you know and create together you know hand in hand with ai and with each other within it you know so I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. And I love that thought process you have on thinking about it potentially creating a new genre, new effects we don't even know exist yet. The infinite idea of an LA2A constantly changing <laughs> is awesome to me. So that's awesome. That's great. Um, okay, let's let's move down right back to the role of automation in art. I know we touched on it briefly, but can we dive into some of those challenges uh, you have written down here? 
Yeah. So, so well, in the challenges section, it's it's kind of a these are kind of the technical challenges, I guess, because yeah, and, and maybe this is a good a good point to have this in the discussion too, because we've kind of been talking about all of these amazing right. ideas and all of these potential things that, right. that could be right, but uh, clearly the fact that I'm myself and others are working on this research indicates that there's still things to be solved, right? Uh, in order to make these things a reality. And, and these challenges are some of the ones that I've identified um, that I think are, are key uh, to, we need a way to overcome them, basically. Um, and yeah, the first is about, basically, there's a limited amount of high-quality audio data, especially music data, especially when you have to consider copyright. And I think yeah. this has actually been one of the biggest challenges for music-related research in general, not just audio engineering, but also the field that they call music information retrieval, which is, you know, things like music recommendation and music understanding have also been limited by this same problem, Um, especially from an academic standpoint, since we don't have access to large libraries of music that we can use and share in an open way. Um, And uh, and that's actually why uh, a lot of the really interesting research is happening in industry now, because streaming platforms have access to this music uh, and can potentially use it for, uh, you know, research purposes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would say actually the most interesting part for me on this is in this problem where we want to learn how to mix. This is where it becomes a big challenge because not only do we need stereo mixes, but we need multi-tracks because yeah. we need the system to be able to learn how do I combine all of these different instruments together to create a good mix. And and not only and we want more than just one mix, but like many different mixes, right? Um, right. So that's kind of one of the current like challenges I would say of our work. And and basically there there is some open source data, but I think that, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but my feeling is that in order for us to like now at the at this moment we can build a system that mixes and it can learn some conventions, but likely our data isn't of high enough quality so that even if it was a perfect learning system, it wouldn't mix very well, basically is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yeah. So I think that we would need better data as far as like high quality mixes and things like that in order to make a really good mixing system, assuming right. we figure out the other details. This and, is one of the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and basically my, my final point on that is I, I have an idea that, you know, maybe one route that this will happen is when music production moves solely in the cloud, which I think it eventually will to some mm-hmm. degree, then you will have, you know, let's say the Spotify of audio engineering will have some giant data set, right, of their users' mixes. Right. And then this may facilitate that eventually. But yeah, it's still like far away, I would say. Right. I was going to say, I've always been kind of fascinated by Lander in that, in my opinion, you know, one of their big selling points is that the AI is constantly learning and getting better. But in my opinion, I feel like it's not really getting better but part of it is I often wonder is if it's always being fed subpar quality audio, you know, it's learning on kind of crummy mixes and how to manipulate those. So I don't know if that gets into what you were just talking about of like we, there's, you know, for it to do deep learning or for, you know, us to create a system where like a great mix is spit out or a great master is spit out, it would need to have access. I think this is what you're saying, access to like, if we could have, um, 
you know, Michael Brower, who mixed John Mayer Continuum, <laughs> which I think is sonically mm-hmm. one of the, my favorite albums, you know, we would need access to his raw files and mix files, right? Basically is what we're saying, multi-track. Yep, exactly. And it could then learn from like a Grammy award winning one of the most, you know, people based on sales and the <laughs> experts would say this is like a timeless album in theory that, you know, sounds great always. 99% of people probably agree with that. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what you're saying we kind of need access to in yeah, theory. Not exactly. like some kid who just started who, which doesn't mean he can't make a, you know, hit song in theory, but we need some sort of baseline almost of like, these are the things that make a, a sonically pleasing record. And you're saying we, pr- we probably currently don't have access to that due to, you know, a number of things, obviously copyright and whatnot. Yeah, Is for that sure. Right? Kind of what you're saying. That's exactly right. Okay. I mean, basically, yeah, we, we need those multi-tracks and yeah, even if, yeah, and even if a copyright wasn't a concern, you know, a lot of them are buried on the hard drives of right. various people that aren't looking to give them up anytime right. soon. Right. <laughs> it's kind of interesting because I have this um, within my template when I mix. I have um, when songs I've I've mixed that have done well, where people are like, "This is good," and you know, the public receives it, and the streamings streams are really high, and the millions on it and whatnot. You know, or it's a label and. They approve it. I go back to that session. I've talked about it before. Uh, I think one time on Instagram was I write down like where each instrument is peaking essentially. Um, And then I have kind of this range of where now at this stage, you know, the kick needs to be here peaking, the snare needs to be here, the vocal needs to be here. And I've kind of created my own like auto mixing. (laughs) It's very rudimentary, obviously. But it, it's pretty amazing how almost accurate it is to have like a baseline. So I could only imagine if we could get this going. I mean, I could imagine auto mixing being a th- like, I mean, you're saying it's already a thing, but, you know, be something that's really tangible and accessible for people. So is, is Lander essentially eating its own crappy tail? <laughs> that's like what I wonder. Tail? Yeah. yeah, that would be my question. Yeah, so I have an answer. I mean, I obviously yes. don't, I have no idea what Lander is doing and I'm no yeah. way affiliated with them, so I can't say for certain. But I would say my intuition is that it doesn't work the way that you are proposing that it works. Uh, so most machine learning systems or deep learning systems don't, what, what they don't learn in the way that we think they do necessarily. Like the intuition, right? As you're saying, every time you feed it a new song to master, it's learning something from that. But yeah. actually, that's not generally how most machine learning systems operate. Excellent. Generally, there, <laughs> there's generally two distinct phases of the development process. There's the training phase, and then the what they call inference phase, which is like when it gets put into production. So in the training phase, you have it like in a lab environment, more or less, like you have the code on your own machine and you have the data that you're training with and you train it. And once it's done training, like you've trained it for however long you want, you then say, stop, you stop it. And now its brain, in a sense, is frozen. It doesn't change what it does. And then most likely what Lander does is they then are like having this kind of back and forth where as they get more data from external sources, most likely, and improve their algorithms, they're kind of like training a second model in the background. And then mm-hmm. when, when no one's looking at night, they just swap in the new model uh, the next day, <laughs> and then a new model's there. But it's certainly most likely not learning from the examples that are getting uploaded every day. Interesting. Where do you think it's learning your hypothetical guess? Is it just someone typing in like, Here's some things, or do you think they're dumping 
tracks in there or something. So I don't know for sure how they're doing it. There are some papers that talk about potential ways for automatic mastering. Yeah. Um, and there, well, so, I mean, maybe this is a good place to talk about this a little bit. So in, in intelligent music production, there's kind of been two predominant approaches from a technical standpoint. And one I touched on before, which is this of like a rule-based system or an expert system, they're also called, which is where you literally go in and try to write down these rules. And that's actually really similar to what you were just describing, like in your mix template, right. where you kind of like see that there's a trend where if I, you know, do these kind of certain things, I get some sort of certain result that on average is okay. Right. Um, and and I don't know for sure, but I think a lot of the original work that Lander that led to Lander was this kind of work. So basically they were looking at a bunch of mixes and also asking people to master, like ask mastering engineers to master tracks and then look at their sessions and try Mm -hmm. to come up with rules that that they could follow. And then what you do is do some very simple analysis when you get a new mix and say, oh, you know, maybe the dynamic range was this, so I should set my compressor based on these rules. And that way is very attractive because it's very well-defined. Like, I understand very well what will happen when I put my mix into that system. The other side is this machine learning side, where you want a system that tries to you know, get away from these rules, but it, but it comes at the cost of you have to train it, and also you can never fully understand what it's going to do or why. So the, that could be bad, right, if you put your mix into the lander and all of a sudden it, it comes out 10 times worse because mm-hmm. of some sort of bug. So I think most systems are still kind of using this rule-based approach, most likely. That's fascinating. I mean, that that makes more sense of how they would do it, I think, <laughs> now that you've explained it. Do um, we need to interview Lander on the podcast? Yeah, we should. <laughs> we should. I got asked one time, a long time ago, when they were in beta mode to be slightly a part of it, and I I told them my concerns and issues with it, and they didn't like it, so they never... <laughs> <laughs> they just said, "Well, we're not interested in your thoughts anymore." <laughs> so, do you need to create, yeah, do you Christian need to create something like a portal or something like that to people who are willing to participate in this essentially high quality audio data like um, study? Like, do you need to create some type of portal where people who are willing participants can? Um, essentially kind of like wave the whole copyright thing and say, yeah, I'd like to be a part of this and I'd like to be a part of what you're doing in the future. Here's my tracks. Yeah, I mean, this would be great. And I think it's something we're heading towards. I would say like my lab in general has been doing this informally, you know, for the last 10 years or so, basically, but but not on a scale that's public. So just like, you know, they know someone so knows someone that has multi-tracks, they don't you know, they don't care about and they want to donate them. Like a guy in a trench coat walking around. (laughs) So, yeah. You need a bottom snare? (laughs) I think you could, I think if you opened it up, you could get a lot of people to give you their stuff, honestly. 100%. I'm, I mean, I would be open to it. I mean, a lot of what I have is obviously other people's work that I work on, but I think there might be more people interested in the technology, um, than maybe realize. Like, I think a lot of people would maybe initially think, oh, no, I don't do that because I'm going to get replaced. But that's obviously I, not what this is about for yeah, this conversation. I think that's the scarcity mindset that people have when they think about future and technology is 
you know, it's all about, oh, I'm going to lose my job and be poor or something. <laughs> Where to yeah. me, when I hear about this stuff, I think, oh my gosh, I could become a millionaire if I can create differently. Like, yeah. if, we, if, I, if I can create new genres of music, then there's all of a sudden just an even more infinite amount of things that need to be worked on in theory, you know, to create and sell to people and all that jazz. So yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I certainly am very open to that idea, and I think it's something that I would I would love to to set up and and have. I think with a few people in the industry that are um, you know receptive to it, it would be you know someone someone to put their stamp of approval on it, saying, "Oh, these people are not evil and are not trying to you know right. take your jobs." Would would be helpful. I, I think I actually do think that I'm starting to feel that there's a change in perception somewhat. I think now that deep learning AI and stuff has become more mainstream just in the past few years that people kind of understand what it can do and what it can't do a little bit better there um, that people are kind of in at least the audio space are somewhat more open than they used to be because I have stories from my supervisor who's basically, you know, been leading the intelligent music production research field for the last 20 years. Uh, He has like quotes from people at audio uh, AES conventions and stuff when he was presenting these ideas that were basically like, you know, saying this is awful. Why would you do this? And, you know, these are like maybe Grammy winning uh, engineers as well. So, so there's like been a lot of pushback in the past that I think is slowly starting to kind of open up as we kind of make it more clear, you know, what are the actual aims of this work? Well, and I mean, you don't, I mean, if it's like kind of like a slow burn thing as well, it's like, it's like the people who are kind of like the big names who legitimately can't give up any copyright information. And it's like ideally, or you're probably not going to have like someone like John Mayer or somebody give up like their, uh, their multi-tracks. However, it's like in however many years, the people who are giving you their mixes and if they keep on giving you their mixes over the years, I don't know, call it like one or however many a year, but you have like a large enough population to where it kind of makes sense. It's... Uh, it's like they are going to be the people if they're in the game for long enough. It's like, it's kind of like Sam and I kind of joke. It's almost like a game of attrition <laughs> that it's like, you know, it's like sometimes like sometimes you're just going to be the guy at the top because there's no one else who's done it longer than you. And so it's like, those will be the people who are winning like awards and doing whatever. And so you would have a favorable enough information. Granted, you're not going to want to wait 30 years for this info to come in. But I mean, some studies do last that long. Yes, um, certainly. So, so I have, so kind of getting on to another thing, re- real quick. And Sam and I don't do any edits really for this thing, so just, just kind of, <laughs> just kind of is what it is. What's, uh, what's your time look like for today? Just so I can be respectful of that. I'm, I'm good for, for, for now. So no worries. What about you, Sam? Uh, I can go probably till five. Yeah. So I have thirty okay. more minutes, but it didn't have to be that. Cool. Yeah, and I have around that as well. Okay. So. Let's uh, let's kind of get off production a little bit, and I kind of want to talk about what may be the next for audio consumption. So the end user, you have Spotify, you have Apple Music, and all this stuff. Where's where's kind of all of this leading? Like, are we always going to listen in stereo? <laughs> is Mono going to make a resurgence? Are we going to <laughs> like? Is Dolby Atmos here to stay? Is binaural going to be a thing? And I, I remember, like, you were doing some cool experiments with binaural. I don't know when uh, you were doing stuff at Providence, I would call it like eight or however many years ago, <laughs> like with piano and whatnot. And so I'm kind of just curious, like like where do you see everything going? And then kind of 
like dipping your toe back into like what AI and all this stuff could really bring to the table? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's also a question that a lot of people are asking right now, seeing the success of like large streaming platforms, basically. Um, And I, I think, I mean, I'm still somewhat surprised that spatial audio in general hasn't taken off more because it's it's really not that new. Like the tech has been there for, you know, 10, 20 years or more mm-hmm. in some cases. Um, but it's really an adoption thing. And I think, you know, it's not clear who's going to figure out how to make it into a product that people are willing to consume. So like right now, it would be very easy, I think, for Spotify, if Spotify had this tech to like do binaural audio, you know, adaptively, like figure out if you're listening on headphones or on speakers and adaptively change the spatial audio, you know, how it's being played back and things like that and handle multiple mixes on the fly, changing them and things like that. If they had this kind of system and it worked, I think you would need to have someone that, you know, on the scale of Spotify in order for it to work. But it's kind of this chicken and the egg problem because no not many people are creating mixes you know in in Dolby Atmos or other spatial audio formats apart from like the biggest players or stuff for film and so therefore you know listeners there's not as much because listeners want the songs they're listening to now to be in spatial audio but if there's no platform then there's also not a place there's no incentive for artists to create it you know like like regular artists that don't have huge budgets so I think it's kind of like it's going to be this thing of who figures out it first and like is it going to be a push from you know creators or is it going to be a push from you know the side of distribution but either way that needs to get figured out somehow I honestly feel like it's going to come down to something as silly as somebody goes into logic and is like, oh, cool, I can mix this in binaural. What's binaural? Oh, wow, this is cool. And it's going to be like that thing of like, it's a new hit single. Everyone's wondering why it's so weird. Then someone like Finney is going to be sitting on like Jimmy Fallon saying, yeah, I just switched it into binaural. And I did that. And then everyone's trying to do that. And then... It's like I don't know. I, I feel like all these other people. I, I don't. I don't necessarily know if they're going to be like too hip to it before it's like a thing. Because um, I, like, I, who knows? It might not have legs um, and to financially invest there. But that that's I don't know. That's my two cents. But I was just kind of curious. It's like, is Spotify going to be here for a while? And I know I feel like that's a fair question to ask because um, you've done a handful of things like leveraging Spotify's API and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, um, and so I feel like you've kind of like gotten your hands pretty deep. So it's like, is like, like streaming, I feel like is pretty here to stay, but it's like, is it at, in the format that like Spotify provides for consumption? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think, like I said, it's the question a lot of people are asking. And I think right now they are in control, you know, in many sense of like, what artists like artists are going to follow what Spotify values. So if Spotify Mm. said tomorrow, you know, we're going to start supporting spatial audio. I think artists would, you know, start flocking to make more spatial audio mixes and learn what, what is that? Um, But I mean, to bring it back to the discussion on AI, I actually am very hopeful that this happens because I think that there is great potential for like this intelligent music production work to fit right into this spatial audio paradigm. Because if you've ever tried to create 
like a mix in Dolby Atmos, for example, it becomes orders of magnitude harder than it is to create a good stereo mix because now you're having to worry not only about how the sound is coming out of these two speakers, but out of all of these speakers, right? And creating a uh, very um, convincing mix or like a very compelling mix is harder in spatial audio, I would say. Um, I mean, maybe someone disagrees, but I think that that's, that's the case. And so what I'm saying is I think that as the complexity of our mixing process increases, that you know, probably makes us also more interested in how can we make this easier. So basically I'm saying, I think intelligent music production will eventually also transition to saying, how can we make a very, how can we make spatial audio mixing easier as well? I'm just like absorbing. <laughs> I know, I'm not I'm like, thinking. <laughs> just like, at, like, like whenever you stop talking, like minds are still being blown. So <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of like the shockwave of like, it, you've stopped talking, but it hasn't completely sunk in yet. <laughs> Latency. <with everything>. Yeah. <laughs> Christian Steinmetz is the future. The Steinmetz 6000. So, so, okay. So, Specifically, where is research now? Where is like your your research now, and where is it going? Yeah, so I mean, I think we've we've really touched on really most of the points. I would say that I would I'd want to like get across about like where where it's uh, where it is and where it's going. Um, to summarize that, I guess. Um, so I would say that we're still at the very beginning of what is possible for deep learning uh, AI for music production. It's, it's still not well-developed. And I, I really don't think there are any products or many products on the market that are using like a very powerful deep learning aspect yet because it's very difficult, basically. Um, but what I think will eventually happen is we'll start to see that like the research that we're doing will eventually get incorporated into products. Um, but as far as, um, you know, like what we have today, I think we have like shown that there is the ability for these systems to learn how to mix, which is super promising, right? Like, I think this is something that people, you know, 10 years ago would have said maybe wasn't possible. Like, could you build a system that just by looking at mixes alone could figure out how to create a mix that is preferred by listeners when they can't see which source is coming from, for example, um, so I think that's super promising, but it's definitely not at the place where it could be put into a product. So yeah, I think the future is is one making that kind of thing work well enough that it could be used by people, and then the second step is like what these other ideas we've talked about, which is like how can we go beyond what we could even imagine for this kind of audio production stuff and unlock these new kind of creative uh, aspects. So another question. What are you currently consuming right now? Because you're blowing our minds. Like like I said, this whole time, every time you stop talking. Like, what are you consuming right now that is blowing your mind? That's like kind of changing like your perspective on like what you're seeing as far as the future of all of this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a combination of a lot of things, you know. I mean, I, I'll say that I've spent a lot of time thinking about these questions, you know, over the last, I would say, four or five years. So I've had a lot of time to like, ruminate on these different ideas and have some thoughts about where it might go. But in the process of that, I would say, um, you know, some of the, some of the links I have in the document are great. Like I'm reading this, the one, the other book I mentioned here, which is called when the machine made art is a really interesting book that is all about the history of computer art. 
And I, what's mind-blowing to me is that there's so many parallels between what was happening in computer art in the 1960s to what is happening today with deep learning and AI art, basically. And, and I guess to see those parallels is what has like helped me kind of create some of these ideas of what I think the future may look like, you know, looking to the past to predict the future, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was the same things. Like when computers were first you know, a thing basically back in that day, you know, people were writing algorithms, like a simple code that would just like draw some interesting squiggles, right? And this, and then and the computer would print out these interesting squiggles and people were like, oh, this is super interesting to look at. But the, uh, the art world basically said, no, this is useless and you're not an artist. But as time goes on, like clearly that art appreciated in value and we see great value in, in those early artists that were working with this like new uncharted medium. And I think that that is kind of what I'm using as some way as a template for what I think will happen in music. So are you seeing like AI right now is kind of like the transistor that like Fairchild, I think it was like Fairchild Labs, not like, I don't think it's like the same Fairchild Labs, but that like they made the first transistor. Is AI kind of like the transistor and how like our lives are about to change? You're not yeah. having to use tubes anymore. Yeah, I would say so. And and I and people and like the top people in deep learning uh, have you know have basically said it's like the new electricity actually, which is probably a stronger statement. Uh, and and these are people you know well respected, but maybe they have a investment in in deep learning being successful at that point. Um, you know, I, I think that. That actually is something that I do want to touch on, which is, uh, you know, uh, while I think that current these current methods that we're using to do this kind of stuff, like essentially modern artificial intelligence, while it's like super promising and has a lot of potential, it's certainly not perfect. And there's like a lot of like uh, problems and challenges, like we talked about a little bit. And I think that there's also likely, you know, as history tells us, there's likely something beyond what we have today, like some new thing that's not deep learning that's even better that we haven't figured out yet. So in some way, I think that's actually something, you know, that I'm interested in. And I think a lot of people are interested in, but, you know, it's this problem of when everyone becomes so focused on one thing uh, as the answer, they become very invested in that thing being the answer, right? Uh, And I think that we should be careful and keep our minds open, I guess, about, you know, what is the other possibilities beyond these set of techniques. Yeah. So looking forward, you see like, I don't know, 20, 50 years from now, what does all of this look like? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is another great thing to talk about that we haven't talked about yet, um, which is, I think, one of the biggest limitations for the adoption of intelligent music production tools is actually a kind of engineering problem and not so much a research problem. And it has to do with how the systems that we use to make audio productions today function, basically DAWs and plugins. And there's kind of a fundamental flaw in those systems based on how they're designed. And it's not the designer's fault, it's just that they didn't have the foresight to see how things may develop in the future. And, And also the problem or potential flaw that our DAWs are very much based on the paradigm of the traditional mixing console in a studio. Like, you know, when you pull up Pro Tools, you still have this like set of faders that are lined up in a row in the same way that they are on a real mixing console. I mean, who's to say that that's the optimal way that you should go into mix? Like, Mm -hmm. it's a decision that someone made due to the practicalities of physical hardware back in the day. So, I mean, that's just one point. But, But basically, like, just from a mixing point of view, like, if I wanted to build a system that could create automatic mixes, 
I would have almost no way to put that into Pro Tools. Like it would be very challenging just to build it physically, even if I had the algorithm already, because getting communication between tracks is challenging. And Isotope, you know, now has their like inter-plugin communication. But I think that like advancement in itself was a significant engineering undertaking, like just to get that to work. So I feel like there's actually just these kind of engineering hurdles that that will slow us down. And and maybe moving to a new paradigm where we can move away from those DAWs to something better, maybe web-based, uh, could be a potential way to to improve that. So, so yeah, so I, what I'm going with that is I think maybe web-based DAWs that work really well is a potential thing of the future, and maybe the DAW looks different than what we know of as today as well. Just so everybody doesn't need a supercomputer <laughs> to run their, their <laughs> software. Yeah, that as well. I, well, that's like another thing is like you saw like the, I don't know if you saw that there's a, I, I guess like the guy in the patent office in 1899, I guess, shut it down for a while claiming that everything that had been made or that was <laughs> going to be made had been made. And, and so you kind of look back to the tech of 1899, you're like, oh my gosh, like staring here at like 2021. Um, and so it just... And I also am like, I've, I've, I don't know why, like my little YouTube searches are like, like people like making say like like in the 1950s, everyone was like kind of looking forward like like the blender of tomorrow <laughs> and like the smart home and everything. You look at Back to the Future, you pretty much had a kitchen that like a rehydrator, you can rehydrate a pizza and stuff like that. And Back to the Future too. And it's like you know what it, it, it in a way you're kind of glad it didn't evolve like that. In some ways, it did evolve like that. Um, and in other ways, there's some pretty serious security things because of the way that things have developed. Um, is uh, uh, is Elon Musk right that a- that AI may uh, may be our enemy? Yeah, I mean, not from the music sense. I'm just yeah. You know. I mean, I think maybe that's something nice about working in music. In some senses, that I feel like you know at least we can be fairly certain that whatever work we're putting out isn't being used to, you know, for military purposes, most likely, or anything, you know, nefarious by governments, uh, most likely. So I think that's something I I like about working in audio and music. Um, But there are some really important questions related to music and AI from an ethics and kind of standpoint that I think is important. And a, a lot of other creators that are, and artists that are working with AI in their music production process now are, discussing this openly. And so I kind of will reference a little bit what they say, which is, you know, so, so one of the, like the big breakthroughs that happened last year was this system called Jukebox from OpenAI, which was, you know, originally AI group that was funded partly by Elon Musk to research AI, safe AI, basically. But one of their works here, this Jukebox is basically a model that's been trained on like, let's say, you know, a huge portion of Spotify's catalog, more or less, just like trained on a bunch of popular music. And it was trained such that it could generate new music, uh, you know, after listening to all of this music. And they've then done things like, for example, generate like a song as if Frank Sinatra was doing a cover of Britney Spears and things like this. Oh. Um, in the, yeah, like in the style of Frank Sinatra, basically. And it sounds like someone singing in a similar style, basically. Um, like synthesizing the audio directly after having looked at like a corpus of millions of songs. Um, and that's super interesting, but also it brings up this like, these ethical questions of like, you know, 
did, you know, is that like what they call like these deep fakes, you know, like, yeah. is it okay to use someone else's audio material in the training of your model? You know, is that, is that, what does it mean for copyright and things like that as well? Um, and in some ways, some of these people are claiming that like training an AI model on some giant data set of audio is like the future of sampling, basically, where instead of like actually pulling out pieces and putting them on your track, you just train a giant model on like some specific subset of songs that you like. And then you use that as like a curative process to create something. Is this the, the it, I was on Jukebox's website, Was is this the same software? It was like Joe Rogan was talking that like it made its own like Amy Winehouse song. <laughs> it might, it might be, probably is. But yeah, they can do things like, um, I think they've also now used it to like make another Nirvana song with like Kurt Cobain. Such you know, sounding like person singing. That's haunting. <laughs> Sam, do you got anything for Christian? Just a big thank you. <laughs> I have so much. I have some things written down, and I'm just I'm going to do lots of research. And your, I definitely want to link your, um, your outline here, and then you have relevant resources. <laughs> I'm just going to dive into all that. So, yeah, yeah, for this sure. Has been amazing. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for yeah. having me. Enjoy. I love talking about this stuff, and I, I, I hope to get more people interested in it as well. And and yeah, as you mentioned, like the references I have in the bottom of the page are like a great starting point. I would say for anyone that's like interested in diving into to what is going on in this in this space. And I think partly like I, I love this opportunity to like talk to you all and to your audience because you know like in the research world we can become very like cordoned off from the rest of the world of audio engineering and the, doesn't get to mix in. So I, I, I enjoy this opportunity to be able to discuss about it and get people interested in what's happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank well, you. Well, we'll definitely have to follow up with you in the, mm -hmm. in the future. And maybe, maybe you will be uploaded to the cloud and you can just make your own episode. <laughs> um, but we'll, uh, we'll definitely have to sync up with you in the future and just kind of see what you're up to. And um, if anyone... Like, are you interested? Because I, I know you send me these emails of like, hey, would you be willing to participate in this LA two-way study? Would you be like, would you want a larger sample size of people from this podcast who are willing? Yeah, I mean, to certainly. Do that? Yeah, you're, 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 you, you can say no. Just <laughs> no, I mean, we certainly are. I mean, interested in that. And I, I think we certainly will have some studies soon, but I don't have any at the moment. But yeah, that's yeah. where we would be interested in borrowing people's ears to, to listen to stuff for sure. Cool. And then if uh, like down the road, if you need anyone who's willing to um, kind of waive any copyright stuff on their multi-tracks or something like that, I'm pretty sure that uh, yeah. people from our audience would be more than willing or at least know people who are willing yeah, I mean, so. I would say we're certainly like totally open to that. So yeah, like feel free to email, reach out, or you know whatever way you want to get in contact. Um, and we're like, have, we have some sort of method to to facilitate that if if people have stuff that they're willing to to donate for research. Yeah, and then I think all hate mail can be directed to uh, <laughs> hate mail at christiansteinmetz.com. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for being on. I I have this episode pretty much already built out and ready to go out. Um, I think we're going to push a few episodes out of the way to get this up front. And uh, it's just like really fun. I actually, well, while we were 
like in the earlier stages of all this, I like really quickly like linked hyperlinked all this stuff to the episode. So it's already there. And so everyone should be able to check this out. This is like literally, you know, a modest like 10,000 words so <laughs> that Christian put up for us. So all contact information for Christian will be there along with like all this stuff to see how like what he's been working on, what he's currently working on. One of my things I love to do, I like going on your website and just looking at all the little plugins that you make and then downloading them and being like, I have no idea what the heck this guy's doing. <laughs> it's like so beyond me. So I, I like keeping up with you. So if uh, if you like any of this stuff, that y'all should follow along with what uh, with what Christian's doing. So Christian, thank you again. Um, uh, at the after I like tell Sam to cue the music. I'm gonna push the stop <laughs> button on this, and if it hangs up on all this, I'll probably get on a group chat or like a phone call just to tell you thank you one more time. But um, Sam, do you have anything else for the episode? No, it's been awesome. Okay, cool. Well, thank you once again, Christian, for being on this. If uh, if your brain is not just a complete and utter <laughs> pile of mush on the floor, this will actually probably be our most listened to episode because you will most definitely have to listen to this more than once. <laughs> so just if we have like four people listen to it, we should at least have like 5,000 downloads on this. <laughs> so... Um, yeah. So, Christian, thank you again for being on this episode. If uh, if you need anything in uh, in in regards to a mastering engineer, Sam can be found at uh, Moses Mastering um, at on Instagram or website. I can be found at For the Record Mastering. And as I said, Christian can be found pretty much in any link uh, to uh, this podcast. I'll hyperlink that down below. So, yeah, I think. I think that's all the housekeeping I have. Yeah, if you like what you heard, like, comment, uh, subscribe. That would be absolutely wonderful. In the background, you probably hear a sweet beat queued up from BeesOfBeats.com, curated by the one and only Sam Moses. Um, this is in the 90s of beats that you've made. I want to know what our 100th beat is going to sound like. <laughs> we should have Christian make us an AI beat. <laughs> oh my gosh. Is yes. this possible? An AI beat for a number 100? It's possible. I'm sure, I'm sure it's possible. <laughs> anything's possible. If you just listen to this episode, you know anything's possible. So anywho, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever y'all are having, have a darn good one. And we'll uh, catch you in the next episode. Cue the music, Sam. Yeah. Right.